Well, good morning. We are continuing in our series in the book of Isaiah, in this long prophetic book of the Old Testament, which we believe has relevance for your life and for mine and for ours as a church. So if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah 15, Isaiah 15, and if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Isaiah 15, and we want to come to God's Word expectantly and prayerfully. So let us read the text together, we will pray together, and then we will consider these two chapters before us. Isaiah 15 and Isaiah 16. An oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Kerr of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Medabah, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares. Everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliele cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud. His soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zor, to Eglath-Shalishia. For at the ascent of Luhith, they go up weeping. On the road to Hornaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her reaping reaches to Igliam. Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. For the waters of Debon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Debon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land... Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence, and in his idle boasting he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth, for the fields of Heshbon language and the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. 
Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elieleh. For over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. And joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore, my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Haraseth. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, in three years... Like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. This is God's word. You may be seated as we pray together. Father, what a passage! In some ways, it seems so very inaccessible. Father, all these place names and just a situation that is so far removed from us, a situation to which we cannot maybe identify. Father, I know that many people have walked in here this morning with many burdens on their hearts and with many weights that are weighing them down. Um, I just pray and I ask that you would, by your spirit, use your word to minister to us. I pray that it might be a weapon against our sin. I pray that it might be a comfort to our deep sorrows and pains. And I pray that it might communicate and convey to us the salvation that is offered to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that you would do your work amongst us, even here this morning, by your spirit, through your word. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So hopefully, even if you didn't catch all the details in the passage, you heard probably some crying and weeping, and probably you can understand that Moab was in a miserable and ruined state. I also hope that you picked up on a little bit of what God's heart is towards Moab, and we'll get there in due time. You see, I think that this is a helpful passage because it speaks to us about Moab, which is a foreign nation, right? And the destruction of Moab and God's response to that destruction. Let me just begin by giving a a bit of a vignette, a bit of an illustration. The enemy is coming. They have taken our land. The ruler has declared war. Armies are surrounding our cities. Soldiers are capturing our towns. Civilians are being caught up in the battle. Does this sound familiar? There's carnage everywhere. There's blood in the streets. There are casualties across the nation. And weeping echoes from village to village, from city to city. The supplies have run out, 
and the people are leaving everything, homes, farms, and family, to run to the border. There is a refugee crisis as the nation seeks refuge from the tyranny of the enemy. Does this sound familiar? Now, there is a sense in which what I've just described could be the situation in Ukraine in the 21st century. But there is another sense in which that same description captures the 8th century situation in Moab. Because while the language is different, and obviously the city names are different, and, and the weaponry has developed over time, the effects of war upon a nation are all too familiar throughout history and across the globe. In our text, the enemy nation is not Russia, but Assyria, and the enemy ruler is not Putin, but Sargon. And we're going to look at this text in three movements. We're going to look at chapter 15, and then we're going to look at two movements in chapter 16. And, and really, Isaiah tells us a story through this oracle concerning Moab. And so in chapter 15, what we see is the weeping over the destruction of Moab. The weeping over the destruction of Moab. Let, let, let's just look at this very quickly. I have already alluded to this, but Moab is in dire straits. The dam walls have broken and the floods are sweeping across the nation. Verse 1. Ar and Kir are prominent cities of Moab. Ar was along a main river, and Kir was the main fortress of the nation. Perhaps we could say, like, they have taken Kiev. They all go up to their temple to pray. They cry out to their false god, but it falls on deaf ears. And out of desperation and out of a sign of kind of humiliation, they shave their heads as a sign of mourning. Weeping becomes the anthem of the nation, and even the armed men, the military, is reduced to sorrow and to being afraid. It is an undesirable and miserable situation that Moab finds herself in as a result of the invasion. Then, as we come to verse 5, look with me there, we hear not just the weeping of Moab, but all of a sudden, we hear the weeping of another. It is the weeping of the Lord. Verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. And we will return to this later, but just note that Moab is being destroyed. And, and the people are in misery. And we'll come later on whether they deserve this or not. But either way, let's just leave that aside for a moment. Moab is being destroyed. Moab is being ruined. Moab is being invaded. And God looks down from heaven, not with indifference, not with gleeful joy, but with deep moans and cries. He looks upon this nation, which was not his chosen nation. It was not Israel. He looks upon this foreign nation, which was a distant relative of Israel. He looks upon them with deep compassion. He empathizes with their pain, and their tears draws out cries from the Almighty. 
I do not think, and I've, I thought about this some, I do not think that this is a stretch for me to apply this to you. That if you have walked in here and your life is in shambles, that if you have walked in here and you feel that your life is destroyed and in ruin, or if you have walked in here in misery and in despair, let me assure you and let me comfort you that the God of heaven sees. And the God of heaven hears your cries and the God of heaven deeply cares for your situation and for your pain and for your hurt. The God of heaven weeps with those who weep. We'll come back to that, but let's come back to our text. Walking through this quickly, I think the text has us kind of in a staccato, quick fashion. And what we see here is that we get this imagery of people fleeing from city to city. Okay, and when I was reading through this, I hope that you heard all these place names that I was struggling to pronounce. Um... And I had to kind of look it up in commentaries and dictionaries on the maps and things like that. But the imagery here that is given is that people are fleeing from city to city. And, they, and geographically, they're moving from north to south because the invader is coming from the north. Okay? Furthermore, the waters have dried up. And there is insufficient supply for all the refugees. And then verse 7, this is just an amazing picture of what's happening Everything that these people have worked for all their lives, all that they have spent their lives acquiring, they are trying to desperately throw it on their backs and carry it away as they escape. Okay? They are seeing their very wealth, their very property, and, and all of their possessions kind of melting away before their eyes, and they're just trying to grasp it all and carry it with them as they go and escape to the south. And then there's this brook of the willows. It's perhaps a reference to a river that borders Edom. So it's on the southern border of the nation of Moab. So the picture, again, is that the Israelites are running, or sorry, not the Israelites, the Moabites are running to the border to seek shelter. Weeping has become the anthem of the nation, and crying is heard from Victoria to St. John's, to use a Canadian parallel. Though Moab would have been much smaller geographically, okay, so if you're just kind of wondering how big Moab was, it was quite small. Very roughly, okay, if you were to start sort of at Niagara Falls, and then, or I guess it's Niagara Falls, and then work your way over to Hamilton and then cut the land off at Hamilton, and that piece of land that kind of exists between Lake Ontario and Lake Erie, then that would have been the size of Moab. Moab was a small, insignificant nation on the, uh, on the global landscape, but nonetheless, Yahweh addresses them here. And so great is the slaughter, and we're continuing in this kind of destruction of Moab. So great is the slaughter that in the city that housed the temple, the rivers were full of blood. And amazingly, and somewhat shockingly, and somewhat surprisingly, the one who brings this destruction upon Moab is the Lord. Verse, let's look at verse 9. For the waters of Debon are full of blood, for I will bring upon Debon even more. In response to the rivers of blood, God says, I will bring even more carnage upon this nation. 
And as the people of Moab are escaping, look at me, a lion for those of Moab who escape from the remnant of the land. For those who are escaping Moab, I will send a ravenous lion to meet them in their tracks. They are not safe if they stay in the nation, and they are not safe if they escape the nation. And this imagery of lion is a little bit interesting. Lion would have been sort of an honorific title in the ancient world, and Moab would have boasted of sort of um, having lions or being like a lion or something along those lines. And so the idea here is that you boast of lions, I will give you lions, okay? It might be like saying to Toronto, you boast of being Hogtown, I will give you pigs. Okay, so that might have been sort of the effect rhetorically. That is the weeping over the destruction of Moab. The main melody that we hear is the weeping of the people of Moab over their destruction. But perhaps sort of the, the harmony or the, the, the other note that we hear is the weeping of Yahweh over the destruction of Moab. Which, is, which gives us a bit of a tension, because how does that work? I thought Yahweh was the one who was destroying the nation, and now you're weeping over the nation's destruction? How do we put that together? You can just hold that in your head. We'll answer it towards the end. Point number two, the remedy for the destruction of Moab. And we see that in verses one through five, if you're taking notes, the remedy for the destruction of Moab. And to be honest here, there's a, there's a bit of a debate as to who exactly is speaking or, um, you know, is it, is it Moab speaking or is it Isaiah and the Lord sort of speaking and, and what's happening here? Um, but I don't think it changes the main thrust of what's happening here. So I'm just going to go ahead with one interpretation um, and then just so, so that we can get a sense of what's happening here. I don't think it's going to be helpful to kind of lay out alternative views all along the passage. So... Um, so here, I think what's happening here, or the, the view that I'm going to put forward, is that the leaders of Moab are desperate, okay? They have arrived at Selah, which was a city in the neighboring Edom. And the people are fleeing, and they are scattering. And the Moabite women and the Moabite girls, the daughters of Moab, they're stuck 100 kilometers north at the river Arnon. Okay? And they're tr- desperately trying to cross that river so likely they can make their way south and escape the invader. It, it is a desperate situation, and so they're trying to figure out what to do. Perhaps this is sort of like a cabinet meeting of the leaders of Moab. They're trying to figure out a solution to their problem, and so the solution they come up with, with is that they say, send a lamb, send a tribute to Jerusalem, send a tribute to Israel's king and seek his help. And, and the messengers plead with Judah, okay? And that com- comes in verses three through four. They, they say, grant us justice. They say, make a policy to receive us and to protect us, okay? Grant us shade from the scorching sun of Assyria, We are fugitives running for our lives. We are outcasts from our land. We are sojourners without a home. Let us take shelter shelter in your midst, O Judah. It seems to be that that's what Moab is doing, or at the very least what they should have been doing. And in fact, if this is what they were doing, then this is the right move, right? Right? 
This is the right move for Moab. You know, whether these instructions are being given to Israel to kind of shelter the Moabites or Moab is seeking Judah and saying, hey, can we seek shelter in your midst? That's the right thing for Moab to do, okay? For Moab to look to the chosen nation Judah, for Moab to look to the nation whose God is Yahweh for help, that was the right thing for Moab to be doing, In their desperation, in their despair, and in the midst of their destruction, for them to look for help from the chosen nation Israel, whose God is Yahweh, that was the right move. And in the course of this prophecy, hope is held out for Moab, and by extension, for all the world. Okay? And we see this in verse 5. Then a throne will be established in steadfast love, And on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. In the midst of national disaster, a um, a better kingdom is offered. In the midst of paralyzing fear, a faithful protector is promised. In the midst of chaos and madness, a steadfast king is prophesied. In the midst of seemingly unjust tyranny, a swift judgment is pronounced against the enemy. This is the oasis in our passage. This is the successful treatment plan in the face of a cancer diagnosis. This is the escape into the free world for the Ukrainian refugee, and this is the strengthening word that you need who have walked in here in despair and misery this morning. This is remarkable. If you remember last week's sermon that Matt preached on Isaiah 13 and 14, when Babylon was destroyed, do you remember what we were supposed to do? We were to sing in gleeful joy that Babylon has been destroyed. We were to sing that the enemy of God and of his people has been vanquished. And in fact, Isaiah 13 all the way through Isaiah 27 is this entire long section on God's dealings with the nations. And throughout it all, the main theme, the main sound that you hear is one of judgment. And so you could think, or Israel could think, or or we we as Christians could come to conclude that God is very much concerned about Israel. He's very much concerned about the church, but he's indifferent towards the nations, and this passage argues the opposite. This is remarkable. Last week's passage or other judgment passages against the nations could leave us with the impression that God is calloused towards the nations. It could leave us with the impression that our response as Christians towards the world should be only one of criticism and condemnation. But this text teaches us, friends, that even here in the Old Testament, long before the coming of the Messiah, long before the gospel going to the nations, that God has a heart for the nations. He is not sovereign over the nations only as their judge, but he is gracious towards the nations as their savior. So how is it that he is their savior? How is it that Moab can receive help? How is it that Moab can be delivered? And how is it that Moab can find salvation? It's very simple. 
It is by placing themselves under the rule of Judah's king. It is by paying him tribute. It is by bowing before him. And it is by submitting to his rule and reign with the understanding that one day one would come from the line of David who will grant them the safety and refuge they long for. The hope for Moab and the hope for the world and the hope for you here today is in the coming David. Full stop, period. I just want you to know this. I want you to understand this. Moab and Moab and no Moab, not Moab. Moab had no consideration for Yahweh. Moab mistreated the people of God. To put it in the modern vernacular, or even even in ancient vernacular, they, they they would have cursed God or they would have neglected God. They did not give him the time of day, and yet when Moab needs help. When Moab needs deliverance, and when Moab kind of comes to Israel and to Judah, then Yahweh offers to Moab Zion's best and only the best. These are not the crumbs that fall from the table, but this is the feast at the king's supper. This is a seat at the table. So the question becomes, for Moab, but more importantly for you, will you Bow to him. Will you place yourself under the rightful rule of the ultimate David who is the Lord Jesus Christ? Will you place all your hope in him, abandoning confidence in all other gods? You see, I think what Moab wanted was they wanted temporarily, temporary political and military assistance but they did not want to reorient themselves spiritually and theologically. And so what we're going to find out is that Moab ultimately rejects this and Moab is ultimately judged for it. But the offer was there. But sometimes we can be like Moab, can't we? That we want God's blessings, but we do not want to submit to his rule. That we want his help, but we do not want the holiness that he requires. And so as it was for Moab, as it is for us, God wants to help Moab. God wants to help you. But God will only help you on his terms and not yours. We cannot expect his help while placing our hope in other things. We cannot desire his provision while ignoring his promises. And we cannot anticipate his blessing while hedging our bets with other gods and priorities. It does not work that way. It did not work that way for Moab, and it does not work that way for today. The weeping over the destruction of Moab. The remedy for the destruction of Moab. And finally, in the final section in, verses, in chapter 16, the reason for the destruction of Moab. Destruction is coming. Deliverance is offered. Moab refuses in her pride. And so this can only go in one direction, and that is towards destruction. Moab will be destroyed Moab will be ruined because of the P word, pride. They love to exalt themselves. They are drunk 
in their own self-evaluation. They are living in the fairy tales of their own greatness. And Moab was renowned for her pride, as one commentator put it. Which means then, listen, that the spirit of Babylon exists in the mighty powers of this world and of this age. But the spirit of Babylon can also exist in smaller and less significant nations such as Moab. Moab was arrogant towards other nations. She had mistreated her cousin Israel. And above all, she was arrogant and proud towards the one true and living God. Did Moab want the help of Israel? Did Moab want the help of Judah militarily and in terms of political help? Yes. Did Moab... Was she willing to receive help on Yahweh's terms? Absolutely not. Verse 7. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail. Okay? And in our passage, it's a little bit humorous, you know. Mourn utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kir Haraseth. I, I probably wouldn't mourn for the loss of raisin cakes. I'm not sure about you. But uh, this probably would have been like sort of a celebratory or a, um, a food that you ate at feast times. And so what it's saying is that the feasts are gone. The celebrations are gone. The joyful um, shouts are gone. And then it talks of this vine, okay? This vine stretched out its branches north to Jazer, east to the desert, and then west to the Mediterranean Sea. They're all struck down. They're all destroyed. And then before, there were full bellies, glad hearts, and jubilant singing. There will now be starvation, parched throats, and a deafening silence. And then we see the most pathetic scene in verse 12. Just, just look with me. And when Moab presents himself... When he wearies himself, when he exhausts himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. Okay? In his desperation, and you have to remember that all of the ancient Near East would have been religious at this point, right? There's no such thing as an atheist back in the ancient Near East. Uh, they would have all been religious of some sort. They would have all had gods that they bowed down to. They would have all had religions and temples that they would have, you know, uh, adhered to and attended. And so Moab, out of desperation, goes to the city, which likely housed the high place. And they go there, and they are crying out to their gods, and it's not just like, uh, Lord, thank you for the food and, you know, bless the hands who made it kind of, you know, perfunctory prayer. They are crying out to a false god, but they're crying out nonetheless. And they're crying out so much that they exhaust themselves with how much and how loud they are crying out. They are pleading with their gods. They are crying out to their gods. They are genuine in that sense in their devotion, but all of that is completely useless. It is to no avail. Friend, in your hour of need, in your moment of desperation, who do you turn to? Who do you cry out to? What is it that you look to in your hour of desperation and need? For some, it might be a bottle. 
to take away the pain and to, to erase, or to give, I guess to give you relief from the hurt. For others, you turn to pop psychologists and self-help gurus, grasping some sort of affirmation that everything's going to be okay. For others, you start to problem solve and claw your way out of the problem because you're smart and you're competent and, 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 you, and you've got grit and you can get through it. For others, you turn to your careers. Things are rough at fill in the blank at home. So I'm going to focus on what I'm good at. For others, you turn to pleasure and living in the moment, forgetting about tomorrow's troubles. For others, you turn to people, craving their approval and affirmation. For others, you turn to your bank account and to your property, drawing strength from your financial stability. I want you to know, I want you to hear, I want you to understand that while some of the things that I mentioned are not necessarily bad things, that even when we turn good things into ultimate things, they will sorely disappoint you. And just as Moab was crying out to her false gods for help and for deliverance, even today, even if there's not a name to the God that you're worshiping, even if it is not a formal religion where you go to a temple and pray, when you look to the things of this world and when you fail to look to the God of Israel, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for help and for deliverance, then that will be to no avail. It will be completely and utterly useless in the long run. I want you to know that false gods will fail you every time. I also want you to see, though, and I want you to understand, and this is one of the main burdens of the text, I believe, that while Moab busied itself with crying out to worthless gods, that while Moab was crying out to these gods who were deaf and who had no ears, and that while Moab gave no attention to the God of Israel, there is no indication anywhere in the text that they gave attention to Yahweh. While they are desperately crying out to their false statues and idols, those can't, they can't hear, but there is one in heaven who can hear, and it is the Lord God of Israel. It is the God that they are neglecting that sees their mourning. It is the God that they are ignoring that hears their crying. And it is he and he alone who is able to enter into their suffering, weeping over their destruction, mourning over their ruin and in his innermost being. The one that they are ignoring is very attentive to their cries. I want you to see that. I want you to understand that this morning. Look with me to verses 9 and 11. Therefore I, and this is the Lord, therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Elieleh. For over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. Verse 11. Therefore my inner parts moan like a lyre for Moab and my inmost self for Kir Hereseth. This is a remarkable thing. 
that God is not some callous judge executing his enemies with glee. He is not sitting in heaven giving them what they deserve as a sort of like divine karma or something like that. No, the very one who is sovereign to bring the judgment upon Moab is the very one who from heaven's throne weeps with Moab over their destruction. Friend, if you are here this morning and your soul is in despair, your life is in ruins, you are shook to the core of your being, you are drenched in your tears at night, or you have simply gone numb, I want you to know that the God of heaven sees you. And the God of heaven hears your cries. And that the God of heaven is deeply concerned about, he cares about your situation. And I want you to know that he goes a step further and he weeps with those who weep. He is moved that he sheds his tears of his very own over you. Verses 13 and 14 tell us that this was an oracle that was spoken in the past and it will be fulfilled in the very near future. Historically, we know of no national repentance on the part of Moab. Um, They didn't realize, as one commentator put it, that their real enemy was pride and not Assyria. And so they were likely to, or they they were destroyed um, by Assyria under Sargon around 713 to 711. Okay, and we don't know the exact historical situation because it doesn't give us dates and things like this, but there was a destruction of Moab around that time, an invasion of Moab. Um, and so that brings us to the conclusion of our text. I want to talk to you about one famous Moabitess in conclusion. You probably know her. You may have even thought of her as I was preaching, or now that you're The wheels in your brain are turning. You're thinking of her now. Her name is Ruth. Ruth, too, found that her life was in ruin. Ruth had lost her husband. Ruth had lost her brother-in-law. Ruth had lost her father-in-law. And all she had was her mother-in-law, Naomi. And so desperate was their situation that Ruth had to leave Moab and immigrate to Judah. Okay? And so Ruth leaves everything in order to go with Naomi. And you know the story, likely. But in Judah, she finds a man by the name of Boaz. He marries her. And he redeems her. He buys her back to be his treasured wife. Ruth, by abandoning her people and abandoning her gods, and by adopting the people of Israel and the God of Israel, she had found a future. And she had found redemption. And she gained back her dignity. And she had found shelter under the wings of the Almighty. Boaz and Ruth would have a son by the name of Obed. And Naomi, who is the grandma, is holding Obed. And a group of ladies come. And this is what they say to her. Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. 
He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Okay? So Ruth and, or, yeah, Ruth and Boaz have Obed. Obed fathers Jesse. And then Jesse fathers David. King David. Meaning then that Moab... That the hope that was held out for Moab in our passage, that this Davidic king, who is the hope for Moab and the hope for the world, comes from the womb of Ruth, a Moabitess. Yahweh, his heart is for the nations. His heart is for all people across the globe. It is not just for Israel. It is not just for those who grew up in a Christian home. It is not just for those who have a long ancestry of Christianity in their heritage. God's heart is for all the world, and it is for all the nations, and it is for all who are here this morning. The question is, will you trust him? Will you allow his compassionate heart to move your stubborn heart to trust in the coming David, who is the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world, and who will establish one day upon this earth a perfect and just kingdom in which all tears will be wiped away and all pains and all hurts will be undone and all sadness will be undone. A place of perfect righteousness, a place of perfect joy, a place of perfect holiness, and a place where you and I will be healed forever and a day for all the destruction and the misery that we face in this life. Will you trust in the coming David? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thankful for your word. We're thankful for how it gives us light in a dark world. We're thankful for the hope that we can have in Jesus. God, you are great. You are marvelous. You are awesome. You are all that we need. I pray and I plead with you that we would not trust in ourselves, that we would not trust in the things of this world, and that we would not trust in false gods, but our trust, our confidence, and our hope would be in Jesus, who is the ultimate David, who is the king to come. And we ask these things in his name. Amen.